Well, I think it's fitting to start my series on Galatians by quoting from Martin Luther and his preface to his commentary on Galatians. This is a, somewhat of a long quote, but it's worth meditating on. Luther is talking in this quote about justification, about being right with God, the basis upon which we're right with God. He says, for in the righteousness of faith, we work nothing. We render nothing to God, but we only receive and suffer, that is, allow another to work in us, that is to say, God. This is a righteousness hidden in a mystery which the world does not know. Indeed, Christians themselves do not thoroughly understand it and can hardly take hold of it in their temptations. I think that's a great insight. In our temptations, we're tempted to rely on our works. That's why he says we can hardly take hold of this righteousness of faith. Therefore, it must be diligently taught and continually practiced. The troubled conscience, in view of God's judgment, has no remedy against desperation and eternal death unless it takes hold of the forgiveness of sins by free grace, freely offered in Christ Jesus, which, if it can apprehend, it may then be at rest. Then I can boldly say, I seek not active or working righteousness. I seek it not to be right with God. That's what he's saying, right? He's not saying he doesn't pursue godliness. But I seek it not as the basis of being right with God. I seek not active or working righteousness. For if I had it, I could not trust it because of our sin. Neither dare I set it against the judgment of God. Then I abandoned myself from all active righteousness, both of my own and of God's law, and embraced only that passive righteousness. That's the righteousness given to us by Christ. Which is the righteousness of grace, mercy, and forgiveness of sins. I rest only upon that righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ and the Holy Spirit. He that teaches that men are justified before God by the observance of the law, passes the bounds of the law. That's not what the law teaches. The law doesn't teach you right by keeping the law. And confounds these two kinds of righteousness, active and passive. When I see a man oppressed with the law, terrified with sin, and thirsting for comfort. Is that you today? Thirsting for comfort? It is time that I remove out of his sight the law and active righteousness and set before him the gospel, the Christian or passive righteousness, which offers the promise made in Christ who came for afflicted, for the afflicted and for sinners. We imagine two worlds, the one heavenly, the other earthly. In these we place these two kinds of righteousness, the one far separate from the other. The righteousness of the law is earthly and deals with earthly things. But Christian righteousness is heavenly, which we have not of ourselves, but receive from heaven. We work not for it, but by grace it is worked in us and realized by faith. That's what Galatians is about. That's what we're going to be preaching about these next few months. 
the gospel found in the book of Galatians, which I think Martin Luther captures very well in that quote. Well, let's just dive right in. And we're looking at the first nine verses today. I see in the first two verses that we believe in an apostolic gospel. Our gospel is a gospel that comes from the apostles. Notice how Paul begins. Paul, an apostle. And then he defends himself. He doesn't do this in any other letter at this point. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Nowhere else does Paul defend his apostleship so ardently at the beginning of a letter because it's being questioned in Galatia. The Jewish teachers, the opponents who have come in, are questioning the authority of Paul's gospel and his apostleship. And so he says, my apostleship is divine. It is from God. We'll see more of that next week. When Paul defends himself, that's a, that's a tough situation to be put in, isn't it? When Paul defends himself, he's also defending the gospel. The two are bound together in this letter. And he emphasizes that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Jesus, the Jesus Christ who appeared to him on the road to Damascus and commissioned him to be an apostle. Paul cannot deny his apostleship without denying the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's called as an apostle. And verse 2, and all the brothers who are with me. You know, why does he mention that? Why does he mention all these brothers who are with him? And then he greets the churches of Galatia. Isn't Paul saying, all the brothers who are with me recognize my apostolic gospel? They're writing to you too, through me. All these brothers, they share the gospel I preach. They affirm my gospel. You're the ones who are mistaken if you're questioning my gospel. The brothers are with me. They're sending this letter to you too, so to speak. And what I write, they affirm what I write. They ratify what I write. You need to listen to what I'm saying. Not only do I have a call from God, but other Christians recognize that what I'm writing to you is authoritative. What's the application to us today? That we have an apostolic gospel. Where is that apostolic gospel today? Is is that apostolic authority present through apostolic succession? That's what the Roman Catholic Church believes and the Episcopal Church through a succession of bishops all through history, of living bishops who continue to transmit that apostolic authority. But we don't read that in the New Testament, do we? When James is put to death in Acts chapter 12, when he's executed by Herod Agrippa I, he's not replaced, is he? There's no replacement of James. There's no no, no new person installed into that office. Now, where, where is apostolic authority today? What, what would we say? We'd say it's here, wouldn't we? It's in the New Testament scriptures and the Old Testament as well. But the New Testament functions as the authoritative interpretation of the Old, does it not? It tells us that all the promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So that the apostolic gospel is found now in the apostolic scriptures, in the completed canon that we have. This is found in the New Testament itself, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. 
In these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. Now, this is the last definitive revelation. There's no further revelation expected, is there? No, the last days have come in Jesus' death and resurrection and His ascension. And there is no new revelation now. The last days have come and we have the final definitive revelation. In olden times, He spoke through prophets in many ways and in many parts. But now we have the final definitive revelation in the Son, Jesus Christ. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. A once for all delivered faith that cannot be changed that is finally given to us in the Scriptures. So we don't accept, do we? We don't accept any additions to what we find in this once-for-all delivered faith to the Gospel that is given to us. This is our final revelation. So one of our core values in our church is Biblical exposition, not just in the pulpit, but in our Sunday school classes, right? And we start, and I, I just think we do an outstanding job. I'm so thankful for so many in this congregation, for Ryan Townsend's leadership, and so many more of you who teach our children, right, from a young age. What, what do we teach them? The Scriptures. That, that this is our authority. And in our Sunday school classes, and in our small groups, the touchstone for everything is the Word of God, the exposition of Scripture. The final authority is not in people, is it? It's not in me or any other teacher. It's in the Word of God. The question isn't, what do the most intelligent people in this church say? What do the brightest people in this church say? What do the most creative people in this church say? The question is, what does Scripture say? What does that faith once for all delivered to us say? We believe in an apostolic gospel. That gospel is found in the New Testament. We don't rely upon our own ideas. We rely upon the Scriptures. And we believe the Scripture speaks, don't we? We're not postmodernists. We we believe we can understand the Scriptures. Not exhaustively, but truly. And we can apply them to today. And that they cut through our sinfulness and speak so that we can live in a way that pleases God and we can be saved and know Him. We believe in an apostolic gospel. Secondly, God wants us to enjoy grace and peace through that gospel. Grace and peace through the gospel. And that's starting in verse 3, isn't it? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We encourage every member of our church to pray through the directory for other members something we regularly encourage you to do in our membership interviews. Pray for the other members of our church. You can't know every member of our church, but you can pray for every member. You can do it in a month, really. And what do you pray for them? Well, a lot of times, I don't know what's happening in your life, right? And you don't know. You look at these people on the page. Some of them you probably don't even know. What do you pray? Well, you can always pray this, can't you? This is a profound prayer. Grace. Lord, pour your grace out in that person's life and grant them your peace. That's a great prayer to pray. It's regularly prayed in the New Testament, isn't it? Grace. What is grace? We've sung a lot about that today. Praise God. Grace is 
a good definition, a common definition, you know, as an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. You've heard that definition? God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a good definition of grace. God's unmerited favor, the gift he gives us. God saves us. This is grace, isn't it? And delivers us, even though we're unworthy. Even though we deserve his judgment. Even though we deserve to go to hell. If a child says to his parents, I hate you, and slaps his parents in the face, of course, there's more than one way to respond to that, but I'm focusing on this today. And it's this. What do we say as parents? We still love that child, don't we? I'm not getting into how a parent should respond. We still love that child. We pour grace out in that child's life. What that love looks like, yeah, we can talk about sometime. But, but we still love. We still pour grace out, don't we? That's the gospel. Because what is, what is grace about? Verse 4, he gave himself for our sins. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is giving God's riches. God gave at Christ's expense. He gave himself for our sins. That's what grace is about, isn't it? Here's the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Of course, this isn't good news unless you believe you're a sinner, right? And you need grace. But if you know you're a sinner, this is the greatest news in the world. He gave himself for our sins. He was our substitute, wasn't he? He died in our place. Instead of being punished for our sins, he gave himself so that we would be free. Isn't that what this text says? So that we'd be delivered from this present evil age. But that's what deliverance is. So we'd be free from our sin that burdens us and captures us. And the Galatians, who had professed faith in Christ, the Galatians were reverting to the law for salvation trying to establish, after they heard the gospel, trying to establish their own righteousness. They'd been delivered from the present evil age, and yet they were falling back into being captured by a law-oriented religion. And so what's Paul saying here? You are falling back into that present evil age. We still live in that present evil age, don't we? You've been delivered from it. Don't fall back into it. Don't go back into the law to be right with God. You've been delivered. You've been freed through the cross of Christ. The new age has come. The new covenant. The fulfillment of God's promises in Christ. Don't fall back into the old now that the new covenant has come. The, the fundamental problem with the Galatians is they've forgotten the significance of the cross. And that's what Galatians is all about, isn't it? The cross and the gospel. And notice how it's right here. He doesn't use the word cross, does he? But it's here. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's what we live from. Now, here's what's so subtle for us as Christians. And I'm talking about myself here. And I think you. In theory, we may hold to grace, but in practice, focus on our works. We may hold to it in theory. We may know this, many of us. But we can focus on, in our everyday life, good things. Our devotions. Our church attendance. 
how much we're doing for the kingdom, what we're accomplishing in our lives. Because we're, we're so prone to find our security and significance in what we do, ultimately, to validate our existence, our families. Can we be proud of them? And we, can, we grip these things as the basis, of, ultimately, of our significance. Instead of resting on God's grace. So that we subtly forget about the gospel. And that's why Luther said we need to relearn the gospel every day. Every day. About God's grace and God's peace. Peace, that well-ordered life, that sense of wholeness that comes from knowing God and knowing Christ, that peace is a result of grace, isn't it? Peace comes because of grace. We can strive for peace, but we'll never obtain peace apart from God's grace being poured out in our lives. That grace and peace comes from God, doesn't it? Isn't that what he says here? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God loves us, doesn't he? Do you feel that this morning? Not all of you do. God loves you. He gave himself so that you'd know his grace and peace. The fight of faith that we face daily is to know God's love. Not to trust in other things or other people, but to rest in the love of God. Remember the text that Kathleen read today? What a great psalm about the love of God. As a father shows compassion to his children. Fathers, do you love your children? Do you want them to prosper? Do you long for them to prosper? You know you do. Unless you're really a messed up father. Right? You know you do. You long to bless your children. It's powerful in you. It's consuming, isn't it? But our God loves more than any father, doesn't he? Isn't that amazing? I mean, I feel it so powerfully how much I want my children to be blessed. But it's nothing compared to God's love. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So that's the battle of faith, isn't it? To believe God loves us. And he wants to bless us. And he wants us to rest in his grace and to trust in him and to rest in those everlasting arms. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is fully God, isn't he? You know, I always like to notice that in these grace and peace sections. Grace and peace to you from God and the Apostle Paul. And you'll never read that, will you? Grace and peace to you from God and from the holy angels. Never read that. Grace and peace only come from God. Grace and peace to you from God and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He is fully divine. He is fully human, but also fully divine. Grace and peace only comes from God. 
from Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to him be the glory forever, verse 5, and ever, amen. He does the saving, so he gets the glory, right? The one who does the work gets the glory. The person who makes the basket at the end of the game and wins the game, they get the glory, don't they? But we don't make the baskets. We don't throw the touchdown pass. We don't, we don't do the great work. He does it. He saves us. He rescues us. So he gets the glory. God gets the glory ultimately. Psalm 50 verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's a good summary of this paragraph, right? What do we do? What work do we do? Well, we call upon him for help. That's our work. Rescue me. Help me. We're tough, aren't we? Here's how tough we are. Help. You know? That's what we say. Help me. And what does he do? He delivers us. And the one who delivers gets all the glory. They pay attention to the person who saves. And he gets the glory. And he gets the honor. But we get the help. What a great thing it is to get the help, isn't it? Grace and peace. God wants us to enjoy his grace and peace. Thirdly, We must beware of departing from the gospel. That's verses 6 and 7. Usually Paul has a thanksgiving at this point in the letters. If you you look at Paul's other letters, almost always a thanksgiving. No thanksgiving here. Why not? He's not thankful. Right? He's not thankful because they're strained. They're departing. I'm astonished. I'm shocked, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. But there isn't a different gospel. There's some who are troubling you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. There's bad people out there preaching other gospels that are wrong and dangerous. And they're nice people often. But they're, they're wrong, aren't they? It's not the gospel they're preaching. We are prone to go to broken cisterns that hold no water. We are prone to believe in other Gospels. You know, I I think there's a a little echo here of the golden calf incident where the Lord delivered Israel from Egypt. But they quickly, what did they do after they were delivered? They made the golden calf. Listen to Exodus chapter 32, verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Yeah, it's just like the golden calf again. Delivered and then turning another way. We are prone to leave the gospel of grace by which we are saved. I mean, this is written to believers, isn't it? We're prone to turn to our works again. We feel better if our lives are based on what we do. We want to be heroes. I want to be a hero. That's what we want to do. We don't want to be failures. We want to accomplish something. Now, I'm not denying God uses us. But fundamentally, before God, what are we? Weak. Children. Infants. We're not great people. We're sick. We're sinful. 
We need a Savior. We need someone to remove the blindness from our eyes so that we can see. And we don't like that. Even after we're Christians, we're prone to wander from that. We're prone to focus on what we do. And so we're prone to go to other Gospels. And there's a myriad of them out there, right? It can be a Gospel that focuses on works. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that, that's the way other religions operate. All of them, right? It's true. Only, only the Christian faith, this is one of the reasons I think it's so gloriously true, only the Christian faith emphasizes you need to be delivered. What does every other religion say? Here's what you can do to get the award. Every other religion. But doesn't that make people think? That view is wrong. All other religions offer a ladder by which we can attain God. But the Christian faith says, you need to be delivered. You need to be saved. Ask the ordinary person on the street. It's not changed. It never has. It never will. Who doesn't know Christ, how they'll get into heaven, and what do they automatically say? Well, I think, I think I'm good enough, or I'm going to try and be good enough. That's what they always say. It's never changed. It won't change apart from the gospel. And that's what all other religions are based on, right? That view. That's what the Jewish teachers are saying, too. Using the Bible, appealing to Scripture. But it wasn't the gospel. Of course, there are other gospels out there. There's the gospel of secular liberalism, right? That says, just follow your desires. There's no law. It'll be fine. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's a gospel, too. That's a different gospel. It's a wrong gospel. It'll destroy people as well. We're prone to leave the gospel. I mean, Mark talked about last Sunday night about two people who are rejecting the truth of Christianity and falling away. A grievous, grievous thing. But what are they trying to do? Build cisterns for themselves that will hold water. I mean, they're thirsting for life and joy and comfort. But what is so sad about it? They're destroying themselves, aren't they? They're destroying themselves by abandoning the gospel. And they think they're choosing life. That's Satan at work. We must beware of departing from the gospel. That's what this whole letter is about. Beware of that. And fourth and finally, departing from the gospel leads to a curse. Paul is strong here, isn't he? Verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. And he says it again in verse 9, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What's that word accursed mean? It means let him be damned. Let him go to hell. 1 Corinthians 16.22, same word. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. May that person be damned. The Old Testament background of that word is the word, you know, the, the, the whole idea of harem, destruction. When they went into the promised land and cities were devoted to destruction and destroyed entirely, that's the background of this word. This word connotes a final and complete 
judgment and destruction. The authority, do you notice this? Paul is an apostle, but the authority is finally not in Paul himself, finally, but in the gospel. Because what does he say? Even if I preach another gospel, I'm accursed. The authority is finally in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in any person. Even if an angel were to preach another gospel, that angel would be accursed. What if someone were to say, an angel revealed this to me. I got this from the angel Moroni, this gospel. Let that person be accursed. Beware, beware of additions to revelation that are not found in the Scripture and that are contrary to the gospel. What an awesome word this is. The Apostle Peter said, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What hard words. There's no other gospel. There's only one gospel. Are we proud in saying that? Is that arrogant to talk like that? Who do we think we are? That's what modern people say. Who do you think you are to talk like that? How, how proud and arrogant. How proud and arrogant to say that we know more than God. Who's proud and arrogant? We're not relying on our own wisdom. We're, we're reading what Scripture says. We're submitting our mind to Scripture. How proud and arrogant for a human being to claim to know the way to God apart from Scripture. How proud and arrogant to say we know more than God. Who's proud and arrogant? Well, we all struggle with pride and arrogance. But our job, isn't it, is to submit to the apostolic gospel, not to invent it. There's lots of things we may want to say to people that our emotions tug us a certain way. Our task as Christians, isn't it, is to be faithful to the gospel. Because we don't want to see people destroyed. We want people to be saved. So when we deny this, when we deny that there's only one way, we deny the gospel itself, don't we? We introduce works in the back door. Because what are those other ways? They all involve works as the foundation and the basis of our salvation. And so they introduce another gospel. So, as we come to the table today, we're ready to do that now. As we come to the table, we come to the table, what, trusting, not in ourselves. That's what the table is all about. This is a a glorious moment in the life of our church, isn't it? We come to the table trusting in what Christ has done for us. We come to the table trusting in Christ's death and resurrection, not in our goodness. So I'm going to say this here. This table, this table is for believers. All those who are truly trusting in Christ and who are baptized believers in a church and a member of your church, not an isolated believer, because we're believers in community, right? So if if you're an isolated believer, you're not a member of a church, This table isn't for you. But this table is for for baptized believers who are trusting in Christ 
and not in themselves, and 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 you're not holding on to some sin in your life and refusing to repent of it. That's not contrary to the gospel when I say that. That is not contrary to the gospel. Because if you're holding on to some sin and refusing to repent of it, you're not trusting in Christ. You're not, you're not coming to Him with all your nakedness and misery. You're holding on to something. And that's what it means to trust Him. It means, Lord, I give you my sin. I'm not going to hold on to this sin. So if you have something like that going on in your life, bring it before the Lord. Repent of it and renounce of it, and you can take of these elements right now, and if it involves another person, make it right with that person. Unbelievers, do not take of these elements. This is a holy and sacred meal. This is not for you. We want it to be for you, but not today. You need to close with Christ, and we'll have elders up front afterwards, and Mark and I will be at the door, and we'd love to talk to you about that. But it's not for you today. So let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we do thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, which is our righteousness. Help us to cling to it. Grant us faith. Help us to look away from ourselves to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.